Welcome back. Here we are for the second episode of the Nutmeg Gaming Podcast. As always, I am your host, Ryan, and we are here to talk about the Sony PlayStation, the original. And uh, today's episode, we're going to kind of run through just a general overview of the console and some of its features and a few games that are pretty important and some of our memories with it as well. So getting into that, before we do that, actually... Let's start with some intro topics. So, we just passed Thanksgiving this past week, and I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday with their families and their friends. And uh, the next big holiday is, of course, the one, the only Christmas. And that being said, it is the gift-giving season, and I know a lot of people are out there looking for PS5s, Xbox Series Xs, and Nintendo OLED models for the Switch. Um, I would just say, you know, at least from my recommendation is don't try not to cave to scalpers if you can. I know, you know, some people really want these things for Christmas or for Hanukkah. It's just, it, it doesn't help anybody out when you spend a premium on something like that, especially because some, some of the times you're vo- voiding the warranty from Sony because you don't have a direct receipt from either a retailer or them themselves that they can verify, so it kind of can get into a little bit of murky water with the warranty. So it's better off just to kind of, you know, hold on to them, hold on for a little while and just wait on that. Just because scalpers, especially this time of year, they tend to be even more prevalent and horrific than normal. Um, But, I mean, my favorite, I mean, and just to kind of touch on that too, is like my favorite part of my holiday is gift giving. Um, I just love getting people things that are, you know, I'm friends and family with, and I just think it's nice to see people smile. And even if it, that's why I always like having backups for gifts, just so like, hey, you know, maybe I didn't get this one specific thing you're looking for, but I'm also getting you something you want, and that way you don't have to worry about, like, you know, scalping and all that such. Also, kind of a side note, happy Hanukkah. Uh, That was this past Monday, I believe, as well, for anybody of the Jewish faith, I hope you had a wonderful eight days and eight nights, and shalom. (laughs) All right. So our second topic this week, we're going to talk about some pickups. So I recently picked up a Retron 3 HD from Hyperkin. It's a clone console that plays Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, Super Famicom, and Mega Drive cartridges, uh, in HD, well, not in HD, but it outputs HDMI for your television. So it's a nice little modern, inexpensive modern solution to play retro titles on like current flat screens. And because of that, I kind of got back into collecting uh, cartridges. So the first one I had to pick up was, and I, I ran into it, was uh, Tur- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Hyperstone Heist. It's just the cartridge, but it's such a solid beat em up. It's not my favorite on the Genesis that without question goes to Streets of Rage 1 but it is definitely up there I, I thoroughly enjoy beat-em-ups and shooters so the Genesis is perfect for that so I had to pick up Hyperstone Heist for those who have not played it it's Turtles in Time with slightly altered levels basically they're both the same game it's just there's some slight tweaking in the ports and the level design that they used a little bit differently but it's basically the same game uh, another Genesis title I picked up was Aladdin uh, the best version of that game, in my opinion. Uh, the Super Nintendo is a completely different game. Uh, this one, it's still a, kind of a, 
I guess you'd call it a beat 'em up or a slash 'em up or hack and slash type of gameplay. Aladdin has a sword and he also throws apples, which is pretty cool. So you have your short distance and long distance attacks, just platforming. The music's fantastic and it's just such a solid game. So I had I had to snag that. Uh, another pickup was, and I actually was going to recommend this later as well, is Cruisin' Blast for Switch. For those who remember the Cruisin' series, it's such a fun little arcade racer, and they recently ported the most current arcade game, Cruisin' Blast, to the Switch, and it plays fantastic. It's got the same quirky humor where you can, you know, your standard power-ups and boosting and, or as they say in that game, blast uh, to speed up. And then there's all these fun different cars, and then you can get crazy things like you can, you know, drive a Triceratops or a shark, and it's super fun. Got a great little soundtrack to it. Definitely worth the pickup if you're looking for a nice, fun arcade racer for your Switch. Um, I picked it up on Black Friday, I think, for thirty bucks. It retails for forty, worth forty if you if you can find it for that as well. Um, and the last pickup I'll talk about this week. I'm gonna split these between a few episodes, but was I picked up probably one of my favorite NES games, if not my favorite NES game, and that's Castlevania 1, and I was able to snag that complete in box, and it's such a good game. Uh, it is it is hard at times, but it, it's such a great soundtrack. Peak Konami gameplay, fantastic. Can't recommend it enough. So shifting to games I've been playing, and this is just some stuff... Just to kind of talk about like stuff I've been playing and stuff I may or may not recommend, just from my first impressions of a game. Uh, I put quite a few hours into the new Forza Horizon 5 on Xbox. It is just as good, if not better, than Forza Horizon 4 was. It's got pretty much the same gameplay. It, it's set in Mexico now instead of the UK, which is... They were both great settings, but Mexico is really cool to drive around. You get to see some of the pre uh pre colonial you know mexicans you know monuments and stuff like you see teotihuacan and uxmal and it's just so cool and such a great selection of cars so far and they're continually adding more content to the game and i cannot recommend the forza horizon series enough if you enjoy car you know driving games and you want something that's a little bit less simulation and just more fun and just exciting uh, the Horizon series kind of hits that because you get that open world element while at the same time being able to, you know, have that, you know, singular race element with each type of race you go through. Uh, the second game is Elder Scrolls Online. I tried that out for the first time. I've been a big fan of the Elder Scrolls series since the third game, and I've gone back and played the second and first. I was not a fan of the online game. Um, they tried their best to keep it similar to their current style of gameplay, but I just find it a little bit bland and a lot of the writing to be quite poor. It just, it's not a fun game to play, at least for me. So that would be one I would probably say if, unless you're really, really into online MMOs, it's probably not going to be your cup of tea. So, and then lastly... We're going to go into weekly game recommendations. So this week, uh, we have a modern and a retro recommendation. So for the modern, is Forza Horizon 5. I can't recommend that game enough. Uh, if, if you can't find 5, snag 4. They're both fantastic. 
fantastic games. They have such good content, and it's such a fun game to play. You have your hunt and find elements with collectathons, with like the bonus boards and the roads you discover. You get to get you know see all these great places in Mexico, and you get to see some of the culture. The story is cringy, but in a fun way. It's definitely worth a pickup and or you know a shot if you have Game Pass. It's free, so definitely worth a shot. And then for our retro recommendation for this week, it's going to be kind of a weird one because it's a PAL-exclusive title for the Sega Genesis, and it's called Days Before Christmas. Days spelled D-A-Z-E. And I discovered it when I was playing one of my friend's EverDrives, and it is a side-scrolling platformer where you play as Santa Claus and it's weird and these and it has these mix between platforming levels and these side scrolling shooter levels where you're in the sleigh and you're chucking presents and if you collect enough uh power ups throughout the stage you turn into Krampus which is super interesting uh definitely one of the weirder titles i've played but it has solid controls fun gameplay and an interesting story so if you could find a rom for it or the cartridge relatively cheap Definitely check out Days Before Christmas, a really fun Genesis game. So, now we are going to shift to our main topic of the week. Week, week. And that this week is going to be the Sony PlayStation. The original, the OG, the masterfully done, amazing console, the first hundred million seller. The Sony PlayStation. Uh, the PlayStation was originally released on December 3rd, 1994 in Japan and September 9th, 1995 in North America. It had a lifespan of 12 years from 1994 to 2006, originally retailed for $299 in the States, and sold 102.5 million units. So going into kind of the development of the system... It was the brainchild of a Sony hardware engineering division manager named Ken Kutaragi. Uh, he had previously gotten an experience in video games by designing the SPC-700, which was the sound chip used in the Super Nintendo enter- Entertainment System. And he was the designer of the original CD add-on for the Super Nintendo and the eventual console prototype for the PlayStation. So the PlayStation kind of starts its life in around 1988 where there's talks between Nintendo and Sony, primarily Ken Kutaragi, to develop a CD add-on for the Super Nintendo. And Sony would be developing the add-on and the add-on's uh, format which was going to be called Super CD. And Sony would retain the publishing and and property rights or intellectual rights, I forget what you would call that, um, of the entire format and anything published on the format. So it was kind of a little bit swayed to Sony, although they did, they were putting the bulk, if not all of the development money into it. So we kind of see that. It's where it starts. And then because of that really hard sway in Sony's favor, we begin to see Nintendo kind of pull back away from Sony and specifically Ken Kutaragi. And eventually they, without telling Sony had broken off ties and basically had canceled 
the Super Nintendo CD add-on. They scrapped it completely, and they didn't tell Sony until 1991, when Nintendo finally announced at the 1991 Com- Consumer Electronics Show that they had a partnership with Sony's biggest competitor at the time, Philips. And we ended up getting the Philips CDI games, such as Hotel Mario and the Zelda games, which are absolute dog shit. <laughs> and, I mean, we saw, we see who, you know, who profited from that. So, because of this kind of shift and Nintendo's, in a way, betrayal, uh, Sony eventually greenlit a full console. So, Ken Kutaragi had been pushing for this for a while. He really wanted to get a system going. He believed Sony could do it. Sony initially did not want to do it, uh, primarily because they viewed companies like Sega and Nintendo as toy manufacturers. Sony considered itself a hardware and audio manufacturer. They considered themselves on a higher plane because they had been they were a post post World War II company that had gotten their you know big break doing audio equipment and cassette recording equipment. Uh, their big hit, obviously, being the Walkman. So they kind of didn't really want to get into that market. And Ken Kudaragi actually almost got fired from Sony because he had been working in this video game realm. But after this betrayal, it was an honor thing for Sony at that point. It was they had dishonored them and they had broken their contract with them or their promise. And this kind of goes to like a cultural uh, tone, I guess, because honor is a very important part of Japanese culture, especially during this time frame. And because most of these guys had been there since post-war or shortly after they, you know, still had that kind of, for lack of a better term, corporate samurai kind of mentality. And that's not, I know that's not like, they're not obviously not samurai, but (laughs) I don't think they're running around, you know, you know, slicing people in half. It's just, it was just kind of that honor code that, you know, there's certain things we do. We do them with respect and with dignity and we, you know, don't renege on deals. We don't lie to people. And that's kind of what really pushed Sony over the edge because they felt Nintendo had basically broken all of those codes, which they had. Um, and unfortunately, I think it showed the the character of the, the employees at Sony at the time versus the character of the ones at, at, uh, at Nintendo. So... Finally, in ninety N ninety one, right after the CES, uh, the current Sony executive Norio Oga gave Ken Kutaragi the full green light for the PS one. He basically just told him, "quote Do it," and he did. Um, Ken Kutaragi had already basically built a somewhat of a mock up of the console. It obviously needed some perfecting and and some tweaking, but at least they had a somewhat functioning prototype to show developers. So in 1993, Sony began to campaign aggressively for third-party devs for the PS1. They began calling companies like Namco, uh, Tecmo, everybody they could get on the phone, Konami, Capcom, Square, and initially most of these companies turned them down because they didn't see a way to make money with 3D games. They didn't think it was a profitable venture they they thought we were still too far behind in the technology and needed to stick with 2d until virtua fighter happened (laughs) and as soon as virtua fighter hit arcades 
then developers realized we could make money with with good solid 3D games. So as soon as that happened, Sony we started beginning Sony began getting calls from these developers to work on the PlayStation. So Sony at that time had had created the their department called Sony Computer Entertainment, which was a division of Sony Music and Sony Corporate. And they were primarily responsible for the PlayStation. So they began to work with these third-party developers and ask them, what do you need? What will make your job as a developer for our console easier? Something that, an approach that most companies really didn't take prior to that. Companies like Nintendo and Sega kind of built the hardware and said, listen, this is the hardware you can design for it. They tried to make it somewhat easy to work with, but still, you kind of had to deal with the basket eggs you had. Sony was the first to kind of, from the you know from the start, be like, "Hey, we're designing the system. What tweaks can we make to make life easier for you?" And that kind of translated over. Uh, Sony began to change the programming language that was primary for the system. They changed most of the dev code uh, to what's called C. Um, C is a was a was the most prevalent programming language on PC at the time. Uh, its modern day pre- uh, equivalence would be uh, C++, which I've used. It's pretty common as well. And so, being that it was it was so easy to transfer from PC to the system coding, it made development time cut so much. It shut it cut that down. It made development easier for the devs. And it made it much more profitable because you didn't have all this labor time of continually coding, which can be somewhat tedious at times. Sony also tried to get their own in-house development. Uh, they realized, you know, hey, third party is our is our life force, but we probably need to have some in-house teams. So they started that with acquisitions when in 1993 they also purchased Cygnosis and... For Cygnosis, they've done a few different games. I know them best for their Formula One games on the PlayStation, which are fantastic. They're some of the most solid racing games I've played on the PlayStation. The, the controls are tight. Physics are correct. It's really well done. So th- that was an in-house Sony team, which was kind of cool. And kind of the last part of the development, again, just to kind of reiterate, was Sony was for, was trying to make the PlayStation developer friendly the dev kits were almost no money the software was coded in a comfortable language for them they made the playstation a developer console they made it so that it was designed for profit and i know this seems kind of silly to say but when you look at the difference between how much a developer has to output for a PlayStation game at the time versus for like a Nintendo 64 game or a Saturn game, there's a substantial difference. And it's much cheaper on the PlayStation, which is why we see so much software developed for it over its life cycle. I mean, there's over 1,300 North American titles, I believe over almost 3,000 worldwide for the PlayStation. So it, it really does show the difference in how... Sony treated their third-party devs. So moving on to the launch of the PlayStation. So the PlayStation was announced for North American launch at the first ever E3 on May 11th, 1995. Uh, Sega 
gave their announcement for the Saturn prior, right before Sony, and had talked about the features of the Saturn, everything. But the current exec at the time, Olaf Olafsson from Sony, simply walked up to the stage and said the MSRP, which was $299. A full $100 price cut from the Saturn, which buried the Saturn. $100, especially at that time, where the dollar was at an extreme high point in the 90s, based on market trends, it, 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 it just gave the system a massive leg up in the market. Um, and then Sony also pushed to market the system towards 18 to 34-year-olds at the time which was a different approach. Prior to that, most marketing was young young kids and t- maybe young teens. Uh, Nintendo primarily marketed for young kids. Sega kind of stretched between young kids to young teens. You see that with the blast processing approach and, you know, Sega does when it's Nintendo. It's kind of like that teenager, somewhat edgy, poking fun. And Nintendo was obviously with Mario. They were very pro-family pro friendly and things like that, but the way Sony marketed, they realized when you market 18 to 34, all the kids want to be like their older siblings who are roughly around 18, so they're going to want to get the same cool games that they're getting, and by stretching that marketing to adults, you pull in some of the adults who are like on this technological trend of, ooh, what's the new tech, what's the next thing that's coming out, because this is during a massive... growth in technology during the 90s between home computing and home audio and cars and everything so that was probably their biggest plus was marketing to that age group so after the launch of the playstation we kind of have a pretty strong generation of consoles uh we have the sega saturn the sony playstation and the nintendo 64 which basically make up that generation of consoles Now, just kind of some specs. The Sony PlayStation was a middle-of-the-road CPU. Uh, It was an R3000 33.9 megahertz CPU, whereas the Saturn had two Hitachi SH2 28.6 megahertz CPUs. And the N64 had an NEC VR4300 CPU, which ran at roughly 93 megahertz. So... The 64 had the strongest CPU, and the Saturn technically had more horsepower, but the problems that you run into is the N64 was a purpose-built system that was designed pretty much for Mario 64, and everything after that was kind of an afterthought, because the N64 was basically a retrofitted PC workstation that was scaled down. The Saturn's issue was that having two CPUs makes it harder to code, and developers struggle when you have to access two CPUs simultaneously. It adds more lines of code, more complications, and more development costs. Doesn't make it easy on the devs, so Sony used a simple, common chip of the time, made it easy to, to program and use, and that was worked in their favor. Um... Basically, again, the memory on the PlayStation is pretty much similar to the Saturn. Both use 2 megs of RAM and roughly 1 to 1.5 megs of VRAM. 
The N64 did have more RAM. They had 4 megs of RDR RAM, which was expandable to 8 with the expansion pack. So it gave it a little bit more uh, graphical ability with polygons. So you can see that with games um, that are released on both. So games like, I'm trying to think of an example, like Resident Evil 2, which is on PS1 and 64. The PS1 version is slightly more gritty. The polygons are sharper. It's not as polished. Whereas the N64 is much better at anti-aliasing. It gets a lot of those rough edges out. The polygons are much smoother. So in that sense, it can help. But again, you have to be able to access that excess RAM. So it, it kind of double-edged sword. Where, this, where the PlayStation excelled was audio. Again, Sony being an audio company really played into their wheel, wheelhouse with this one. And so both the PlayStation and the N64 used a 16-bit sound chip. The PlayStations, however, was a 24-channel audio chip. Uh, It was a Sony-built audio chip, so it was extremely high quality, extremely well-built, giving CD-quality sound right out of the gate. Many audiophiles at the time actually liked PlayStations, especially the first model, because of the audio chip it used and the amount of audio outs it had available. So it really was popular. And the Saturn used a Yamaha YMF-292 sound chip, which, again, solid sound chip, but it limited itself to beeps and boops. You really didn't get the depth of sound you would get with the Sony system or, or even the N64. And then lastly... You know, just to compare the three systems was the launch price. Again, Saturn launched at $400 while Sony launched at $299. That kind of clipped them at the heels there. Um, It really, it made it hard for the Saturn. And that coupled with more bad decisions from Sega of Japan, it really crippled the market here, especially in the States. And then a few years later, at that point, the, the PlayStation had had a price cut down to $199, so Nintendo had to match that at $199 for the 64 at launch. And lastly is the sales numbers. The PlayStation sold 102.5 million units, while the next closest of that generation is the Nintendo 64 at 32.93, and the Saturn finally wrapping it up at 9.26 million. The PlayStation outdid both companies by a factor of four almost and just proved what a company with the know-how can do when they put the money behind it and really play into the hands of your developers and really work on helping get them involved into the console. So kind of just to wrap up, the last little bit here we're going to talk about uh the launch games on the system so the the launch libraries for all three systems this the playstation has without doubt the most diverse launch lineup it has over 10 games most of which are good and it just kind of covers a gambit uh you have ace combat one also known as air combat giving you your flight sim game battle arena toshinden for a 3d fighter ESPN Extreme Games, not a great game. <laughs> Kill Eek, the DNA Imperative gets you your Doom-style first-person shooter. NBA Jam Tournament Edition, your arcade-style sports game. Power Serve 3D Tennis, also not a great game. <laughs> the Raiden Project, which is the first true arcade-perfect ports of Raiden 1 and 2. Um, Rayman, 
which was a port from the Jaguar. Um, phenomenal side-scrolling 2.5-ish D platformer. Ridge Racer, Namco, giving you a phenomenal racing game. Street Fighter the movie, also not great. And finally capping it off is a 3D kind of space shooter, which is Total Eclipse Turbo. Um, so really, with that launch lineup, you get kind of the gambit of everything you need to kind of have that console succeed at launch. You know, which really helped the system throughout its life cycle. And lastly, the PlayStation did have some, it's a trend that Sony's followed to to this day. Five different model revisions. Something that Sony continues to do is with its hardware is continually try to perfect it. Something that I actually like. I think it's it's nice to kind of realize that you're never perfect the first time. As much as people want to say, oh, when Nintendo gets it right the first time, not necessarily. There's always imperfections. Um, you can see that in every Nintendo console ever made. There is there is some shortcomings that could have been fixed over time. They just choose not to. Um, they do it more with their handhelds later, but home systems not so much. Sega also really didn't do too, too much of that. Um, you do get a little bit with the Genesis because there's the Model 2. And then the Saturn also has the Model 2, but it's minor. Um, but you get five model revisions with the PlayStation 1, ending with the PS1, spelled out O-N-E, which came out around the same time as the PS2, which was basically a mini version of the original PlayStation. And the PlayStation also had a lot of peripherals because, again, because they were so developer-friendly and everything was coded so comfortably... They could do games on the PlayStation they just really couldn't easily do in other places. You get peripherals like the gun, the Namco Gun Con or the Konami Justifier, which give you light gun games on the PS1, like Time Crisis, uh, Point Blank, Project Horned Owl, just phenomenal stuff. You get the Jog Con from also, I believe, Namco, which is a cool little racing controller where you get the wheel to kind of adjust for racing and kind of gives you that steering wheel-like approach. You get flight sticks from AC you, for games like a a Air Combat and Ace Combat. And lastly, another really big peripheral is the single hand controller, which I believe AC also did, and it was designed to help you with like point-and-click adventure games and horror games like Clock Tower, Alone in the Dark, etc. So it really shows the, the diversity that's built into the PlayStation, which is kind of nice. So that's kind of the history of the PS1. Um, again, it's just a brief overview if you guys have any things you want to know about or just curious about or any comments, just, you know, let us know on Instagram at nutmeggaming91 and, you know, hit me up. Let me know, hey, you know, I really want you to, you know, comment on this or what do you think about this game? You know, because it'll be good topics for future episodes and it'll kind of give us, you know, back and forth, which I would love to have. Um, so just to kind of wrap up, I guess, my favorite games on the system slash memories with the system uh, I got my PlayStation in 1996, I believe, or 7. Might have been 7, actually. Uh, I had had a Genesis for about three days, and then my house had burnt down, unfortunately, when I was a kid. So we didn't have a console for a while, and then my dad came home with a PS1 with three discs and two controllers in a garbage bag, what I call the garbage bag years, of consoles because there was a large portion of them that came in garbage bags for some reason. And the three games were a game called Jupiter Strike, 
which is a kind of obscure early 3D space shooter for the PlayStation. Cyberspeed, which is a 3D racing game that is semi-on-rails and relies on use of centripetal force to kind of speed up and pass racers. It's very awkward. But the most important part was we got the Volume 3 Interactive CD Demo Disc, which had a demo for Tekken 2, Crash Bandicoot 1, uh, Twisted Metal 2, I believe, um, uh, some sports game, and Tomb Raider. And that kind of really got me into the system. We played that level of Crash endlessly. And that's kind of where my first love on the system came, and it's one of my favorite PS1 games is the Crash Bandicoot series. Uh, My favorite of the series is 3, and it's just such a fantastic title, and it really showed how to do a 3D platformer extremely well. And that kind of started that franchise, you know, that that style of game off, and I really love it. Um, Another game that, again, that was on there that's super important is Tekken. Uh, it's the Virtua Fighter team that came over, ended up doing Tekken, and are, is arguably the best fighting game of that generation, I would say, is Tekken 3. It's showed the perfect way to do a 3D fighter at the time, and it's still one of my favorite games of all time. And then three more games that are kind of important for the PlayStation and really show what the console could do was the first Metal Gear Solid game, it really brought in the idea of a 3D stealth-based, like, shooter-slash-adventure game. And it was really, really well done by Konami and just excelled on the PlayStation. Last, uh, Secondly was Symphony of the Night, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which showed the PlayStation can do 2D also extremely well because it's many people's favorite Castlevania game and has probably one of the best soundtracks of any game of all time. And lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, Final Fantasy VII. It created the 3D RPG genre. It revolutionized the idea of what a console could do. It showed the power of the PlayStation. It's arguably a near-perfect game for some people. And... It, it kind of cemented the PS1 as the best console of that generation just because it allowed every other RPG company to come there. So definitely those are some really important games that I would definitely recommend trying out if you have if you have a PlayStation or want to get a PlayStation. Um, so that kind of wraps up our topic this week. That's really a brief overview of the history of the PlayStation, kind of where it started out, you know, as the CD add-on and ended up as, you know, the best-selling system of that generation. You know, Sony, a new coming company, just coming in and completely taking the market share by storm. So, kind of just to wrap up, um, thank, thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions for future topics, please feel free to hit us up on Instagram at NutmegGaming91. Uh, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, etc. And also feel free to leave us a voicemail on anchor.fm uh, slash NutmegGaming. And we'd be more than happy to uh, 
play those on the podcast. So thank you guys for listening and hope you have a wonderful holiday if we don't hear from you from then. So happy Christmas, happy Hanukkah, and have a wonderful year.